If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the late 18th century, Britain was catapulted into war with Republican France. But at the same time, it was dealing with global unrest in the age of revolutions. And all of this upheaval was keenly felt by the huge institution that was the Royal Navy, as a new book by James Davy explores. Speaking with Ellen Evans, James delves into the Royal Navy's journey across the turbulent 1790s, a period rife with radicalised sailors, mutinies and harsh responses from those in power. Thank you so much, James, for joining us on the History Extra podcast. Your book is reconsidering the Royal Navy at the forefront of the age of revolutions, um, the late 18th century and into the early 19th century. I wonder if you can particularly situate us first in this period. What is happening in Britain at this time? The first thing to say is that this is a period of incredible political change. There are numerous revolutions breaking out around the world, um, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution being perhaps the most most famous, but also countless other sort of uprisings um, across the globe. So there's there's a real sense that that things are changing and new ideas are circulating. For people in in Britain, it's slightly different. As, as most of your listeners will know, there is no British revolution in this, in this period. Certainly not in the same way there was in, in France, for example. But we do see uh, an incredible impact in Britain all the same. Revolutionary ideas would, would still be felt. So we see increased political engagement from across the British Isles, not just limited to the middling and elite classes, but also um, including artisans and, and even labourers. We're seeing a lot of extra parliamentary activity. So Parliament at this time was very limited. The franchise was very limited. Only a few people actually had the vote. But you're seeing other forms of 
political activity taking part um, outside of that. And also a, a strong movement for, for reform, um, the idea that parliament does need to be changed and the British constitution um, is not perfect and it, and it needs to be, it needs to be reformed. So although there's no British revolution, there's, there's, it's absolutely clear that the revolutionary age is still impacting on, on British people. And if we turn to the Navy then in this picture, what what's the scale of this workforce in this tumult that Britain is experiencing? How impactful is this this uh, institution? Yeah, so the the Navy is a really interesting case study, I think, into into a lot of this. Not not only is the Navy one of the most important national institutions for, for reasons you know you might expect, it is it is Britain's major military arm. It protects the nation from invasion. It defends the nation's lifeblood, sort of maritime global trade. It's also a, a cultural symbol across the 18th century. Ships and naval officers, and to a certain extent, naval sailors as well, become sort of cultural symbols that are disseminated and, and um, across the British nation. The Navy is also the nation's largest employer. At its height, there are about 130,000 sailors serving in the Navy, added to which are thousands of employees in royal dockyards, in the Navy's administration on land. There's also all the people across the country working in forests and fields that are producing you know, wood and food for the Navy. So it has this incredible reach. So as, as, a, as a sort of institution, it's, it's really, really important. But just as a sort of body of labour, it's a really interesting case study into how political ideas um, can circulate, can move around. Yeah, and what what's coming across there is that it is a really reciprocal exchange of ideas. I mean, can you take us more specifically, perhaps, into some of the ways in which uh, sailors or, or people in the navy are being radicalised, perhaps thinking a bit differently in this period? So my my main point with this book is to suggest that sailors are not separate from these wider events, right? You you might think they would be. Uh, a sailor might have spent many months at sea away from news and communications and certainly there were ships that uh, that did spend a long a long time at sea but actually my whole point is that that sailors were still very closely connected to these these wider transformations of the of the period so firstly sailors are themselves spreading ideas around the world sailors are mobile they are literate they are encountering and engaging with different communities and cultures around the world in a way that your average Briton might not be. So they are themselves individuals that are that are communicating new ideas around the world. But also they're much, much closely connected to shore-based communities than, than you might think. The vast majority actually served very close to Britain. And even those who, who didn't still kept in touch with um, people in Britain through through letters um, and uh, reading newspapers and the like. So sailors, I think that the, the, I guess the key thing to say is that they're not separate. They're distinctive, but they're not separate. They're very much active agents in the age of revolution and, and crucial participants in it too. As well as the social upheaval and the sort of um, political ideas they're picking up on that aren't necessarily distinct to maritime life. Could you take us more inside the, the conditions or the life on board? Are there any commonalities of life in the Royal Navy that really radicalise sailors in this period in terms of life at sea? 
I think the first thing to say is that sailors were not just one sort of homogenous mass. They were they were a community that that held very very different ideas. Often there's this tendency to think about sailors in this period in very simplistic terms. They were all radical, all they were they were all loyalist. Of course they were they were both. There was a real spectrum of opinions across the navy just as there is in any any sort of social or, or political community. But I guess the point to make is that they are all thinking increasingly about politics and how how they can utilize that kind of politics on on board a ship. There are definitely a number of things that frustrate sailors in particular. So one is the the hated policy of impressment, which saw sailors coerced against their will into the navy. Um, basically at times of war when maritime labor was in short supply the state would simply declare a hot press and sailors could be just taken out of ships taken off wharf sides across the country and sort of forced into the navy there is a debate about the extent to which this occurred but it definitely did occur and tens of thousands of sailors definitely entered um, the navy through this means i think it's worth explaining a little bit more about how impressment itself changed in in the 1790s impressment was certainly not not new it had been used since since the late 17th century by by a navy actively seeking to secure trained maritime manpower and similarly sort of resistance to impressment wasn't wasn't new um there's been a lot of work done across uh, on this subject across the 18th century but i think what is happening in the 1790s is you're seeing sailors acting collectively to resist impressment and and also acting in league with with communities and so you see this in particular areas in the early years of the war so 1793 1794 in newcastle south shields whitby swansea liverpool these sort of maritime centers where where sailors were acting together to resist the press gang and this took many forms, but could could involve, you know, really quite extreme examples of sailors, you know, literally fighting press gangs, forcing them out of towns, destroying rendezvous points, um, and often supported by the local communities. And I, again, I think this is a this is a product of of the revolutionary seventeen nineties. This isn't how press gang resistance had operated before, and I think it's 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 really closely connected to this this wider political discourse around rights and individual rights and what you can what you can expect it eventually reaches the, the nation's capital as well in 1794 there were riots in london following the the impressment um which many believe believed to be illegal legal impressment of, of one individual and um sort of riots that that rock the city for a couple of nights so what happens at sea or what the Admiralty is trying to achieve at sea can't help but also affect what's going on in Britain and, and across British society at the same time. And not to be flippant about a tremendously horrendous practice of, of impressment, but there are slightly comical aspects, aren't there, of people perhaps dressing up to avoid this practice? Yeah, there's all there's all sorts of means by which sailors could could resist the press gang or try and escape it. I mean, so it the, the first chapter of my book is all about impressment and and how people attempted to evade and resist it. And it starts off with this this um, individual, a guy called John Nicholl, who after the the conflict wrote a wrote an autobiography of his of his life. 
He's such an interesting guy in all kinds of ways. But he was he was serving on a merchant ship. He arrives back in Britain just as he hears the news that the war's broken out between Britain and revolutionary France in 1793. And he's a trained sailor. He knows the Navy's going to be looking out for him. So he, he, he is desperate to find another merchant ship, which pays a lot better than the Navy and avoid the Navy through, through that means. And so he tells this tale of him sort of crossing through Britain, trying all of these tricks to try and avoid the press gang. So yep, he uses, um, he uses disguise. He dresses up as a sort of clerk, um, gets himself, um, smart clothing and a cane. And at one point he even sits in a, in a tavern and pretends to be sort of, writing up documents to, 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 to confirm this, this, you know, pseudo identity that he's created for himself. Um, he does eventually make it to a port, find another merchant ship and goes on the voyage. And it's actually on his return from that voyage that a naval ship comes alongside and, and, uh, impresses him, takes him off. And from that point on, he's, he's a naval sailor. So you're right. It is, it is sort of, it is, comical almost for us to look look back on the various means sailors could use but it but it all comes back to this sort of fundamental injustice whereby individuals were forced to do a kind of work in a kind of institution that they that they did not choose to do and and whilst they could expect to be released at the end of a war as we've seen that didn't always happen immediately so yeah faced with injustice people try all sorts of things to 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 combat and and resist it um and i think nichols a really good example of of how how this one individual went about went about trying to avoid getting sucked into the navy this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. So if impressment is one harsh reality, what are the other factors going on? A lot of sailors get very frustrated about poor conditions at sea, and particularly food. One of the things that, that really comes through is how much good food matters to, to a sailor. Quite 
a number of the disturbances and mutinies that I've that I've looked at are occurring because the food wasn't good or wasn't up to the standards that the sailors would expect. The other thing is is harsh discipline. Now it's important to note here that for the most part sailors weren't against punishment in principle. In some ways it, it helps order a mess deck if a sailor that steals something is is punished, right? It's in it's in the interest of the whole for that kind of thing to be punished. But what they did have a problem with is unfair punishment. And there's this idea of fair usage whereby sailors would expect a certain level of treatment. You could almost think of it as a, as a social contract. On the one hand, the sailors would expect good treatment and in return, they, they would you know, work hard and, and, and do their jobs. But when that social contract was broken for whatever reason, and in the 1790s, it's broken almost repeatedly and certainly much more than at any other period in, in the Navy's history, um, you do see a lot of disobedience, strikes, mutinies and, and the like. I'd like to talk about those tactics a bit more, but if I can just pick up on on strike particularly, because what really surprised me in your book, I didn't realise the maritime origin of that word. Can we um, share with our listeners the history behind that? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I should qualify that by saying there's a number of different ideas about where the word strike comes from, but I definitely think the one that has the strongest claim to accuracy is that it is a maritime term. And earlier in the 18th century, it was it was used to describe sailors who had struck their masts and therefore refused to sail, refused to go about their duties, and therefore the word to strike becomes entered into the into the national lexicon. So yeah, it's a good example actually of of the reverse of what I've been talking about so far. Not just that sailors are influenced by shore-based political culture, but the sailors themselves are, are shaping wider currents of, of protested resistance. So you've mentioned strikes, you've mentioned uh, mutiny, which might seem more traditionally maritime methods of protest. Can we get a little into those forms of protest and then looking at how perhaps they evolved during this period as well? Yeah, so there's the sort of various stages of protest. It's almost one of the chapters of my book sort of lays out the sort of taxonomy of protest, the various steps that sailors could go through if they were frustrated with something, generally sort of escalating in extremity as their grievances were not listened to. So you might, if you were a sailor with a grievance, either whether it's bad food or or, um, appalling discipline or something like that, um, you know, your first port of call might just to mention it to an officer or potentially the ship's captain and just say this is this is unfair this thing has happened it's not right can you do something about this it will probably shock you to learn that this often wasn't very successful and and often sailors that did this could be then sort of uh, labeled as, as troublemakers themselves and there are examples of of sailors um, being punished for making um, what the admiralty thought were, were unfair accusations next you might write a petition Again, I'll reiterate sailors, uh, the vast majority um, of sailors had a degree of of literacy. Certainly more than half of sailors had the ability to to sign their own name, at least. And a number of sailors were very well educated and and capable of of writing really interesting uh, documents, be they political declarations or petitions, sort of laying out grievances and, and making demands. If that didn't work, then you might take a slightly more extreme step. So another thing that you could do is use sound to register grievance. So there's this thing called murmuring, um, where sailors would, um, en masse, 
offer this this sort of low guttural noise, but the collective sound was supposed to sort of warn that they were unhappy and 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 in some ways, you know, try to intimidate the officers and say, look, you really have to you really have to take our our complaints seriously. If that didn't work, then you might take you know the most most extreme step of all, which is to arrange some kind of of mutiny. There are different types of mutiny that occur, and one of the points I make is that the, the 1790s sees much more extreme and often much more violent mutinies taking place. Traditionally, mutiny was a form of strike. Sailors would refuse to go about their their business, would withdraw their labour in the hope that that would force force either the ship's officers or or the admiralty to do something. But this all changes in in 1794. Um, I think there's one mutiny that's really, really significant, um, the mutiny on the Culloden. On this, um, sailors do start mutiny very much along the lines of a, of a strike, withdrawing their labour. The authorities closely communicating with the Admiralty, agree a degree of terms and say, please come on up, there will be no punishments, but let's, you know, let's talk about this. The sailors do come up and I think a number of ringleaders are instantly put in chains, um, put on trial and, and executed for mutiny. And so this is this moment where suddenly all trust is broken. Sailors no longer trust their officers, officers no longer trust the sailors. And I think from this point, the sailors sort of learn that if they want to conduct mutinies, if they want to secure their aims, they have to do it in a much more aggressive and, and, and often more violent manner. The other thing they do is start organizing fleet mutinies. So these aren't mutinies where it's one, sh- where it's occurring on one ship, but it's occurring across fleets. And this is, this is what happens in, in 1797, um, when fleets stationed off Brest at Plymouth, at Portsmouth, at, at the Nore, and also at Yarmouth, all mutiny collectively at various points across the summer of, of 1797, hoping to secure their, secure their aims. So before we get into those aims, can we look at this very diverse sense of of protest, of of mutinies and strikes occurring? How were they regarded by those on land? Were they widely reported? How how is this transforming perceptions of the Navy at this time? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think early in the decade, you don't see it commented upon in, in newspapers and popular culture that much. So, for example, the, the Culloden mutiny that, that I just talked about gets a couple of small mentions in newspapers, but it's it's it, in many ways an entirely normal mutiny. It's one ship. It's, it's dealt with fairly quickly from the Admiralty's perspective and order is restored and, and everyone sort of gets on with it. The real turning point is is the fleet mutinies of, of 1797, in part because it's the most shocking series of mutinies in, in Britain's history thus far, taking together tens upon tens of ships, mutinying at different ports around Britain. At the time that there is a, a French invasion attempt being organised on the north coast of France, so suddenly it seems like these fleets that are supposed to be the nation's defender, supposed to be protecting Britain from from revolutionary France, suddenly aren't doing that. And I think this is really shocking for the British populace. So it's it's around this time that newspapers start referring to sailors on board these ships as as the floating republic. So there's a real sense that protest and 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 of course these mutinies occurring in the navy are really terrifying the population. So what does what does the nation think about that? It's really 
It's really hard to say. There's definitely a lot of evidence that many people in Britain were very supportive of um, what the sailors were doing, particularly in the early fleet mutinies at, at Plymouth and Spithead. There was a real sense that they had public support. And even the, the later and slightly more extreme fleet mutinies at, at the Nore and, and, and um, Yarmouth, there is still evidence that a lot of working people across Britain sort of had, had sympathy with what the sailors were doing. They were just trying to improve their working, their working conditions. At the same time, though, there is a, a really effective sort of government propaganda campaign against, against the sailors, you know, suggesting that they were traitors, that they were undermining, undermining the country. And it's, there's, you know, there's some evidence that this, this is, this is effective. And a lot of people, a lot of people start to distrust the Navy. In the aftermath of, of the mutinies, there is a, a sort of a very deliberate campaign by the state, by the Admiralty and, and the British government to try and resuscitate the image of the sailor, to sort of suggest that these mutinies were just a one-off and everyone everyone should now move on. The sailor is trustworthy once again. In a battle shortly after the, the mutinies of 1797, the Battle of Camperdown, they fix on this sailor, a guy called Jack Crawford, who performs this act of heroic bravery in the battle. And he's sort of emblazoned on plates and prints. And this is, this is sort of disseminated across, across the country in the hope of setting a different example of, of what the British sailor, um, was and, and would be. Um, but it doesn't seem to have been very effective. And it's partly for that reason, I think, that the, the British government turns to Nelson as as a figure around which these kind of ideas of Britishness and loyalism can be can be cemented. I think the British public didn't really trust sailors anymore, but they could trust this successful officer and charismatic officer. And how much would you say that Nelson and, and Trafalgar that follow, you know, swiftly on the heels of this period, what, what did happen in terms of the legacy of this revolutionary period that you're writing about? And how was that affected by what happened next? So I, I think the legacy of the Navy in the 1790s is a, is a really interesting question. We definitely know that in the subsequent conflict, the Napoleonic Wars, which breaks out in 1803, there were far fewer mutinies. They did still occur, but there were far fewer. And you might think this was down to the sort of repressive policies that the state, um, the Admiralty, had brought in after 1797. So we see a lot of brutal punishments, very public punishments, the expansion of what mutinous behaviour um, meant. Uh, in 1798, for example, you have more sailors executed for mutiny than any previous year. So this idea, you know, mutinies keep occurring. But after 1803, that seems not to happen. And you, you might think, therefore, that this state repression had, had worked, right? That the sailors had been sort of subdued, had been, had been forced, um, to avoid using, using mutinies. Um, so, so dire were the punishments. I think it's much more to do with political culture, though. I think the Navy, if the Navy of the 1790s was a product of this sort of tumultuous political culture, where there were prominent critics of the war and open supporters of revolutionary ideas, it, it makes sense to me that that would carry into the Navy. Um, after 1803, though, it's very, very different. There seems to be much more consensus in British, uh, in British political culture, a real sense that Napoleon is this sort of uh, ogre, bogeyman figure that needs to be defeated. And um, 
you know, the discussions aren't necessarily about whether the war should be fought, but but how the war should be fought. That's where the discussion moves. So I think it's it's understandable then that that can, that sort of political consensus is also reflected a little bit more um, on board ship. As a, and I, you know, I repeat, sailors were products of this of this community from which from which they come and, and remain closely linked to it. The question of Nelson then is is a really interesting one, and and. I think he is a really good example of how state propaganda can work. I think, as I've said, after the, the mutinies of 1797, uh, the government needs a hero. Um, and they, they, they try with this sailor, Jack Crawford. It doesn't really work. Um, but Nelson is a bit of a godsend for them. Uh, here is this really charismatic naval officer that wins battles, that seems to have really good relationships with his with his sailors and his crews. There are there are a few prints that are that are produced that show say, uh, Nelson sort of sitting around drinking with his with his sailors on board on board his ships. You know that obviously never happened. Nelson wouldn't have dreamt of doing anything like that. But it it, it sort of creates this idea of Nelson as this sort of hero for all people. And you know I'm not trying to suggest that. And I should be careful what I say here because I don't want to annoy anyone. I'm not trying to suggest that Nelson wasn't a brilliant naval commander, um, or, you know, a fantastic, a fantastic tactician and, and, a, and a brilliant leader of men. I'm not trying to deny that at all. Um, but I also think his that the extent of his fame and the degree of his fame um, is partly because of this wider context of, of mutiny and distrust in the Navy sailors and the state's of you know, the state's willingness and indeed ability to use Nelson as a kind of cultural figure around which um, loyalist ideas could could fall, I think is really, really significant. His victory at the Battle of the Nile, I think only makes sense, that the sort of celebrations that follow it only make sense after, in the context of another year of, of mutinies as had occurred in 1798. I also think the government are pretty pretty clever and, and smart and use him really well so after the battle of the nile he gets nelson gets sort of sent on shore to sort of speak at various gatherings of people and so they sort of use him quite quite strategically and when at the end of the decade there's a there's a new french invasion threat it's nelson that they send to to blockade um the french ships in port and to try and attack it and you know, nelson's writing letters basically saying i'm not i can't really do anything <laughs> there's very little i can do to destroy these ships they're so well protected but it didn't matter it was the fact that he was there and calming public fears that that was the important thing so i think if you sort of carry that through then into the napoleonic wars you know nelson's reputation as uh britain's leading admiral had had been cemented and you know obviously it, it, it takes on a whole new level of martyrdom then after the after the battle of trafalgar in 1805 Okay, so beyond what what Nelson and this this brilliance combined with that propaganda effort represents for the navy in the early nineteenth century, if you're a sailor who was press ganged, was was hungry, wanting better food, had suffered a brutal punishment, you've employed perhaps a strike or a petition or something. How different does the navy look for the average sailor in the aftermath of this period? Is that possible to to say? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting. It's an interesting question, and it's quite difficult for the the historian to to think about the sort of social fabric of a ship, ship a ship after a mutiny has occurred. There is some evidence that crews remained quite divided, and that 
sailors who had, for example, testified in a court-martial against a sailor would be sort of ostracized and certainly treated very badly by their by their messmates. There's a few examples of, of that happening. I think there's also just a, a wider sense of unease and, and amongst sailors. Definitely the end of the conflict. So um, as news of, of peace preliminaries arrive in, in 1801, um, there's a real sense amongst sailors that they just want to go home at that point. And actually there's this a whole other series of mutinies that happened that year as ships that were still stationed out in the Caribbean or around the world uh, you know, are, not, are not being allowed to return home and they, they don't understand why. S- certainly after... 1801 and 1802, as we enter the, the Napoleonic Wars, same sailors seem much less willing to use mutiny as 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 a means by which they can secure their aims, as evidenced by the fact that there's just significantly fewer mutinies in in the decades um, after 1800. Quite why that is 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 very much up for debate, and so you will find some historians that think that's because of state repression and because the navy had had, had punished so brutally and so violently that sailors had sort of been, um, you know, quelled in a way. You'll probably find historians that argue that the 1790s was was just a sort of a blip, a brief moment where there were all of these all of these mutinies, but fundamentally sailors were loyal and and you know broadly happy to be there. I think there's there's strength to both of those arguments, but I think my my view is is as I sort of mentioned earlier, is that sailors were a product of of the community from which they came. And if you're it's therefore not surprising that the the tumultuous political culture of the 1790s produces a very politically engaged and equally tumultuous shipboard society, um, and that the more consensual political culture of the 1800s and, and early 1810s produces shipboard society that is is perhaps more more moderate, more conservative, and less willing to use these sort of more extreme means. That was James Davy. His book. Tempest, The Royal Navy and the Age of Revolutions is out now and published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.